Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. So, Matt, again, Dude. while you were still on sabbatical yesterday, um, it was a... I think a seminal day in the world of crypto. It was why insane. Why don't you bring us in and we'll let me just tell break you this down here. Uh, okay, September two thousand eight. I'm on a flight from Cologne to New York via Shannon. We had to do sure, an emergency who doesn't do landing. That? It's yep. no, uh, okay. it's not part of the story. But I'm just so we land at JFK and I turn on my BlackBerry, right? Yeah. And I see the, the Lehman thing. Brothers news. Sure. Everybody on the plane, there's like, oh my god! Like everyone, <laughs> no one knew, you right. know. The same thing happened to me yesterday. I'm coming back from Indonesia via Tokyo, and I turn on my phone, and I see the FTX news, and I'm just like chills going down my spine because this is such a big deal. Sam Bankman-Fried, I think of him as like the richest, smartest guy in crypto and trustworthy. He's pushing for regulation. He, you know, champions transparency, and all of a sudden. Anyway, let's bring in, uh, well, we have Katie Greifeld here in the studio. I'm thrilled to see her. Yep. We have Joanna Ostinger um, out in, well, she's probably Singapore closer to where I was yesterday, yep. uh, out in Singapore. Uh, and I read her work all the time to get uh, uh, to get the latest on crypto. So I'm glad to have her. And then Nick Carter from Cast Island Ventures, a voice that, you know, we all listen to this guy's podcast every week. Mm -hmm. On um, the brink, baby. Brink Nation. Um, to learn what we can as well about the industry. So I think a pretty excellent panel. Nick, let me start with you. Um, were you as shocked? I know that this played out over, you know, Friday uh, 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 with concerns about liquidity. And then on the weekend with CZ just dumping FTT, which is the FTX native token. Um, but man... If anyone had prepared for the crypto winter, I thought it was Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah, I was, I was flabbergasted. I think even the most seasoned industry participants were completely taken aback by this. FTX was considered extremely credible. Uh, a lot of my friends uh, had capital on that exchange, uh, including people that had dodged all the previous exchange hacks, insolvencies, rug pulls, etc., were stung by this one. It is really one of the most shocking exchange collapses in the history of the industry. Uh, one of the worst days in the history of the industry. Wow. Uh, Joanna, I want to bring you in here. I mean, for the skeptics of all things crypto, I, I just think of a Jamie Dimon type. Does this give them more ammunition to say, 
this isn't really an asset class. This is just a speculative kind of side to the market. At the very least, it gives people like regulators who say we need more guardrails in the crypto industry a lot of ammunition because it does show that somebody can be flying high one day. I mean, it, I think Bloomberg Wealth did this. It, he lost 94% of his fortune in one day. I mean, that's How much money is a that? stunning collapse. In, in dollar that's terms. Billions. I think was it 15, 16 billion? Yeah. 16 billion dollars he lost in one day. I mean, that's just nuts. Can so. I say I had a pretty good tweet? If you won the Powerball on paper, you're worth more than Sam Bankman Freed. Which was two billion. But you know, after taxes, maybe SPF has more money. I know, I know. The tweet and did, also, if the you, tweet did well though. At one point, I think he was worth like 40 billion all in. Mm. And I hope, you know, if you're worth 40 billion, hopefully you take a billion and bury it somewhere, right? Yeah, you get some liquidity somewhere. Hey, Nick, so where do you think, I mean, you've been in this space since the beginning. You're one of the trusted voices there. What are you and, and your colleagues in the space saying today? We're um, bracing ourselves for the for the real fallout today. So yesterday sort of events came to a head but today now we expect to see the knock-on effects we look to see the lenders which are exposed to alameda which is a lot of them we look for that next leg down uh the, yesterday was kind of the red wedding but today is we're taking out the bodies mm. well, uh, and, and, well and it's and gonna be tough we we also i mean there's a letter of intent for binance to buy ftx but it's non-binding right and you said your friends had capital on the ftx platform i'm assuming they've taken it off no, I mean, you know, withdrawals were suspended. We don't currently we don't believe that FTX can make depositors whole. It, it appears now that there was some funny business going on with Alameda potentially gambling with deposits on the platform. That's kind of my best explanation for what went on. I believe there's a hole and, um, you, you know, depositors, whether retail or institutional, will not be made whole at this point. Nick, first of all, let me say, there's no one I'd rather be talking with right now. You mentioned this was like the red wedding. Now we're going to see the bodies get taken out. Let's talk about what that fallout looks like. Uh, obviously, some big headlines today from Novogratz's Galaxy saying that, you know, they had exposure to FTX. They have somewhere close to $50 million of withdrawals being processed. Uh, Solana obviously has really taken a brunt of selling here when you think about how SBF backed Solana. But where else should we look for the contagion, for the fallout from here? Look at the lenders that, I mean, Alameda was the biggest borrower. There's lenders left the, still after three hours? Not for long, <laughs> not for long. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is, it pains me to say it, this is the death knell for BlockFi, I believe. Um, I, don't, I don't know if Genesis, uh, apparently they didn't have uh, residual exposure here, but there's actual DeFi lenders too that had exposure. Uh, yeah, th this will be the sort of like final blow that basically uh, kills off the, the crypto lending space for now. Joanna, is this going to be a period where now regulators will take a, maybe a more intense review of the kind of they were supposed the, the to be doing space. that already i know sam bankman freed they was the main voice was a champion of that right i mean the question is right? are we gonna get this is like climate right there's so much talk and no follow-through is is anybody gonna demand transparency from these big multi-billion dollar businesses 
Well, the interesting thing is they are kind of trying to do it themselves to an extent. Binance has talked about actually putting out some numbers publicly and some other exchanges are now saying that they'll follow that standard. So the industry may start to do some of that itself, but it is hard to do the regulation. This is such a fast moving industry that to try to get ahead of it, to try to work things out about how something should be regulated is pretty tricky. But it is also true that there aren't a whole lot of jurisdictions at this point that you can point to and say, you know, they really have a solid balance where they're, you know, they're kind of helping the industry thrive, but also really, um, you know, regulating solidly. So, you know, a lot of people in regulation still trying to work this out. Nick, let's put this more firmly into your world and talk about the crypto venture space. Uh, it feels like just if you look at crypto Twitter, everyone is so shell-shocked about this moment that that hasn't really been discussed. But what's your best guess on what happens to crypto venture? I mean, how how do you even go about finding deals in this sort of environment? It'll be an enormous reckoning for all of the funds that were effectively copy trading uh, Sam Bankman Freed, which was a lot of the, su the successful funds in the last two years. Those those were the best trades. FTT, FTX, Solana, Serum, everything under Sam's nuclear umbrella, that was the trade of the last two years. Those funds uh, will struggle now, undoubtedly. Also, the growth funds that did that $32 billion round for FTX last year, those are some of the best and most respected funds in the world. There's going to be a huge amount of scrutiny there. The question will be, did they fail to do diligence or did Sam lie to them uh, and effectively commit fraud uh, during that round? I don't know what the answer is, but you have to imagine if they knew the truth of FTX's business at that point, there's no way they would have done that deal. Again, these are some of the most credible and respected, not just crypto, but generalist funds in the world. That round and then the lack of governance over there will also be severely scrutinized now. What about retail traders? I mean, aren't they going to want to see um, some sort of guarantee that these exchanges are going to be able to make them whole or else not leave any money on the platform? Yeah, I mean, retail has been kind of very skeptical of these centralized exchanges ever since the events of, of the summer. This is going to make it worse. Again, FTX was considered one of the most credible exchanges, top three really most credible in the world. Now, um, we are seeing some efforts at reform, like Joanna mentioned, exchanges doing proof of reserve. I'm really heartened to see a lot of exchanges announcing they're going to do that. That's probably not going to be enough to rebuild confidence this point, FTX, really one of the biggest and most visible public-facing mm -hmm. exchanges in the world going down, uh, is just going to shatter industry confidence. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to pick up on. What I was thinking about Coinbase yesterday. If you're an FTX user and suddenly, perhaps, if this deal closes, you're going to be a Binance user, would you maybe you rather be with a Coinbase? Wouldn't you rather be with a U.S. publicly listed company that's under the purview of the U.S. government? Is that too naive for me to think? And I see Coinbase today. It's just down another 6%. The stock has been doing terribly. So maybe no one agrees with me. I have no reason to question Coinbase's solvency. I think they've been really well behaved throughout their entire history. But 
also a lot of these users are, are offshore. Maybe they, you know, don't have access. So a lot of uh, FTX users were users because they didn't have access to other exchanges, whether Binance or Coinbase, actually. Uh, so it, yeah. I don't even know and if the, they'd be able to make the, US, the switch. Yeah, the U.S. exchange is not part of this deal also. I mean, it, the other thing I'll say is since it is non-binding, you, know, you, you talk about it, this deal closing. I mean, I think that's really up in the air at this point. I mean, I, I would say the, the general feeling is that it probably isn't going to happen. Um, you know, it, it sounds like it, you know, CZ has put out some stuff talking about doing the deal and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And they've, they're obviously um, looking at it. But I think there's a, a big sentiment that this, this may not actually happen. Yeah, Joanna, I'll just yeah go, go ahead I, I just think actually the liability that Binance would be inheriting here is astronomical I think I would say very low probability that the deal actually closes wow all right real quick Nick 30 seconds what happens to Sam Bankman Freed do you think in the next days weeks I wouldn't want to be in his shoes man um, yeah. I think the question is uh, is whether there's criminal liability I would say likelihood of yes oh boy all right so stay offshore I, stay yeah. offshore run away hey, hey Nick you're down in Miami stay safe down there I know we got a little bit of a weather event coming your way but you guys are used to it Nick Carter founding partner Casson Castle Island Ventures Joanna Ossinger and Katie Greifeld uh, cross asset reporter so we had it just circled here uh, a big, big day in crypto. Yesterday, we're going to be dealing with this for the days and weeks to come. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. All right, so the red wave that was kind of expected uh, with this midterm elections coming in more like a red ripple, I think is what I've read. That's the term I've been hearing this yeah, today. I'll I'm... go with that. Um, Nathan Dean, he's a senior policy analyst uh, for the U.S. and Latin America Bloomberg Intelligence. For better or worse, he's located in D.C. He's one of those D.C. Policy wonks that you don't necessarily want to go hang out with at a cocktail party, but man, <laughs> we might does like he to know. hang out with Nathan. <laughs> does, but boy, does he know what's going on down there? So, Nathan, we're so lucky to get a couple minutes of your time. What do you take away from what we know so far about these midterm elections? 
So last night was a shock. I mean, I don't think any, many people were anticipating that the Democrats were going to perform as well as they did in the House. It's almost like the New York Jets beating the Buffalo Bills last week. It was feasible, <laughs> but, you know, it was still a shock. And so, you know, the, going into the election, there was this anticipation that the Republicans were going to have 30 seats, 40 seats. The latest projection I'm seeing from Bloomberg right now is maybe about two to three seats. And so that's a very tight margin in the House. In the Senate, you know, I think there was more anticipation uh, that the Democrats would perform well there. Uh, If you see what's happening in Georgia, Nevada, and uh, Arizona, it looks like the Georgia runoff is going to be the most important thing to to determine in the Senate control. But, you know, I, I will say the thing that we're telling our clients right now is that if the Democrats win the House and they keep the Senate, it brings back reconciliation. And that brings back the ability to do broad corporate tax increases if they wanted to, fiscal stimulus. That's the one scenario that I don't think the markets have really looked at. So that's the one thing that we're telling people to watch for right now. All I care about is the SALT deduction. Is it ever coming back, Nathan? Well, you know, there, you know, Carl Smith at Bloomberg Opinion wrote a great column this week about how tax bipartisanship could play out in 2023, and salt deduction is one of those things. And unfortunately for the people that are living in New York and New Jersey at the moment, you know, the thought is that salt deduction may go away in its entirety. Now, uh, you know, it's way too soon to tell. I mean, tax is probably uh, one of the two or three top issues they're going to play out in 2023, no matter the election, because the Trump era tax cuts are eventually going to expire for the consumers. And so, uh, you know, I'm not feeling very good about it at the moment, but, you know, Andrew Silverman, our tax analyst, is certainly looking at it, and and it's going to come back up next year. All right, Nathan, you're a policy geek. We love talking to you to get to the real details here. Over the next two years, what happens in Washington? Can can anything really get done, or is the the veto pen from the president going to stymie what could be a Republican-controlled Congress? So, you know, you hear gridlock. Gridlock is going to increase. Well, gridlock is the new normal. I mean, things happen in gridlock. It's just instead of going through this process where you have big bills and debates and so forth, it all gets bunched up into government shutdown fights or debt ceiling fights. It's a perfect opportunity for Republicans to try and use leverage. This happens if the Republicans control the House. Now, the Senate side, if the Republic, if the Democrats control the Senate, you're going to see certain bills move faster through uh, and so forth. But ultimately, there are a couple of things. One, the president is still the president, which means anything that he signs has to be bipartisan. There's no way the filibuster is going away in the next two years. So, again, it has to be bipartisan. So rather than these broad economic fiscal stimulus bills, the debates and the fights get down to the sector level. So if you're in things like marijuana or cryptocurrencies or drug pricing, you know, this is where you actually have to start looking at the legislations that maybe don't you know, materially change your portfolio, but certainly would increase sales, increase revenue, increase costs, mm. etc. And it happens. Ah, so that reminds me of the Safe Banking Act, which is something that um, I don't think anyone's been particularly optimistic about allowing Safe cannabis, allowing cannabis oh, okay. companies to bank and to allowing them to be advised by Wall Street on M&A, etc. Is that, is that still not going to happen anytime soon? Actually, we're fairly bullish on it. I, I actually think that there is a decent chance it could pass in the lame duck. For those of you listening, you know, the State Banking Act allows banks to service marijuana businesses. Now, the pot stocks react almost time any time a policymaker mentions this. But the Safe Banking Act is currently attached to the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act. And because we think that, you know, Senate Democrats want this issue done, they want to pass on it and so forth like that, ultimately, I think it will pass. The most important thing to take 
keep keep in mind is that these pot stocks react almost 20 to 30 percent when you, this news like happens. But then once they realize that decriminalization or legalization is not going to occur, they decline the next day. So certainly be careful of watching this in the lame duck period. Uh, Nathan, what question are Matt and I not smart enough to ask you that we should be asking you this morning? That's it seems a good like way you to know everything, man. <laughs> yeah, what's the most important uh, issue that we're that, that us laymen are, are missing out on here? So, I, you know, I would just say just the debt ceiling is coming back and the debt ceiling fight is coming back. And, you know, so what, Jersey, what, what, what does that mean? Remind us of what that means, because it's been a while. OK, so, you know, the debt ceiling is essentially the limit that the U.S. Treasury is allowed to borrow up to to pay our debts and so forth like that. And in every few years or every six months, as it was earlier, Congress needs to approve the, the limit. Now, in the last debt ceiling debate, uh, the Democrats were able to unilaterally raise the debt ceiling by a dollar amount as opposed to a date amount. And essentially, the United States will run out of money to pay its debts sometime in the first half of next year. Now they can use what is known as extraordinary measures to use other funds, and the ultimate go-no-go deadline is probably sometime in the third quarter. That's what Iowa Jersey, our chief rate strategist, is is predicting. So the debt ceiling is this really bad time for markets in terms of you see lots of headlines, political brickmanship, mm-hmm. you know, the end of the world is coming. Fixed income certainly reacts to it. Equity strategy certainly fixed to reacts to it. But ultimately, Congress kicks the can down the road at the last minute. Mm-hmm. Now, if Kevin McCarthy does become the Speaker of the House, he said he wants to use this as leverage to potentially get in some deficit reductions or something like that. But ultimately, we think it's going to just play out the same way. Really painful headlines, folks in the fixed income market not liking what they're seeing, but ultimately there's a deal and then it gets done. It's just painful for all of us in the markets. Right. Debt ceiling is a bit like my spending budget at home. Yeah, it's, it's I just raise it whenever I need to. Yeah, exactly. Why yeah. not? You can handle it. Nathan Dean, you are too good at this stuff. I mean, a serious policy geek. Uh, we love getting uh, your but time. But a cool guy. Oh, yeah, cool guy. But again, cocktail party. Maybe wonk is wanna... a better word. Than okay, geek. wonk yeah. better than geek. He's a senior policy analyst for uh, Bloomberg. He went to Purdue. You know? I know, Boilermaker. As far as fast food burgers go, Matt, Wendy's are one of my all-time favorites. Oh, dude, Wendy's is the best. They... I mean, in terms of the major chains, there, yep. I think there's no comparison. They, okay, if you just put up, you know, the main burgers of yep. Wendy's, McDonald's, and Burger King. Clearly, Wendy's is I far and away. You. Yeah, I'm with you there. Fresh uh, ingredients, yep. delicious. They reported uh, some numbers yeah. uh, just this morning, so I want to check in with that. I want to check in with just what's going on with the fast food biz in general, the restaurant business. We do that with Mike Halen. He's a senior restaurant analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Mike, uh, Wendy's, I'm all into Wendy's. How did they do with their results here? And I'm with you guys. Wendy's Wendy's has a great product. Uh Wendy's is similar to a lot of the, the quick service chains and restaurant chains that we covered. They, they did better than expected on the sales side. Um, you know, three-year trends accelerated. So, so the trends in the third quarter were better than they were in the second quarter. Uh, but margins took a hit, right? Restaurant-level margins contracted, uh, again, pretty significantly. You know, things uh, – we've passed peak inflation, so uh, they should improve next year. But uh, they're also expecting some some significant margin, margin pressure uh, in the fourth quarter as well. Which, I mean, from a consumer perspective, that's a good thing because you know that they're not going to s- skimp on the ingredients um, that make their product so good. I guess – they have to raise prices, right? Yeah, right now they're running at about ten percent, which is, uh, you know, it, it's typically the high end uh, of what consumers will expect. 
uh, will accept uh, in the quick service realm. Um, you know, uh, they said for next year, they're looking at more like mid single digit uh, price increases. Um, you know, inflation should ease to about that level as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what they said on the call and what a few other uh, companies have mentioned is that the consumers earning 75000 a year and less are cutting back on their spending. So they're they're visiting less, they're ordering more off the value menu uh, and less off the regular menu. <clears throat> um, you know, and but does the and, lower income, been, I mean, let's say we go into a recession, right? I mean, like a real recession, not just the two quarters of contraction that we've already seen. Um, do, does the lower income consumer eat less at fast food or does the lower income consumer go more to the, you know, the value menu? Because it seems like it is cheaper to get a value menu at a fast food place than it is to make a, you know, good, healthy meal at home. Yeah. So, I mean, you, there's a lot of people doing that now where they're, they're doing these fast food diets where they're eating at fast food restaurants, you know, two, three times a day to wow. try to save money. So, um, you know, customers will do that, but you'll also have, few, we should say know, we like, don't advise that. That's, that's not healthy. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure my my doctor wouldn't advise that for sure. But, um, you know, so so what we'd expect and what we saw in the last recession, you know, I think is, is a good good indicator. So what you'll see is you'll see some people falling out of the QSR bucket and, and into maybe more grocery purchases because it is cheaper to feed your family that way. Um, but then you'll have some middle and upper uh, some middle and higher income consumers kind of fall into that QSR bucket to kind of save some money. Um, but, you know, there, what happened last time was McDonald's got really aggressive with price uh, and, and pushed their value menu very, very aggressively. And, and, it, and it definitely hurt, hurt some of the smaller QSR chains like, you know, Wendy's, Jack in the Box and some. Yeah, so they're not so, the same so size, right? Some pressure. They don't. They don't have the same reach. I mean, I just... Went to uh, Indonesia via Tokyo, stopped in, you know, Tokyo. I was in Jakarta. Um, McDonald's is everywhere I was there. in New Jersey. Oh, they have McDonald's in New Jersey as well. But <laughs> the point being, you know, you don't see Wendy's over there. You don't see Wendy's really in Europe very much. I mean, there's I think there's one at Heathrow, but otherwise um, they're not there. Is that better for them right now? They're not affected by they don't have to close stores in Russia, for example. Um, they don't have to get out of places that are getting hit already economically i wouldn't i would say that it's not better for them so and, and the reason why is that that franchise everyone franchises their business internationally right so they're not getting hit with the inflation pressures this is just those those businesses are just um basically paying the franchisor a royalty stream right so the fact that wendy's doesn't have that international business you know is part of the reason why it that it's just it's got that smaller market cap, right? It's just a, a smaller chain in general, but it also provides them with a pretty good opportunity, right? They have a strong business in Canada. Uh, they're expanding into Europe and they're starting with the UK, and they're really playing the long game, right? And, you know, it's it's clear that the U, UK is, is kind of struggling right now, and and a European recession is likely going to be worse than what we're, we experience here in the US. But but Wendy's is, is definitely playing the long game there in terms mm -hmm. of their international expansion. I think it's it's a, it's a very good opportunity for them. All right, folks that are listening and that are Bloomberg Terminal users, if you want the best research on Wall Street on the restaurant business, go to B I Eats E A T S Go. 
And that's where you can find all of Mike's work. Mike, B.I. Right. Space. B.I. Space eats. eats. Go. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, Mike, I was at uh, Chipotle yesterday on 3rd Avenue here in Manhattan. And instead of having three people behind the counter making you know, the burritos and the tacos and things like that, there was one. And so the Whoa. line was crazy long. And I went up, when I finally got up there, I asked the woman behind it, and she's like, yeah, we usually have three people here, but we don't today because we just can't hire enough. So how much is, is that labor still an issue for the, the restaurant business? It, it, is a, it is an issue. Um, it's not as bad as it was a couple of quarters ago. And, you know, if the economy continues to slow, which we expect, we think it should ease some more. But right now, Chipotle is a little bit of a different animal. Um, you know, their sales are up 34 percent since 2019. Nice. Right. So, yeah, they've absolutely crushed it. Uh, they're one of the few chains that have, you know, traffic gained since that time. Um, so they are in more and more in need of labor than a lot of their competitors. Right now, we're probably getting pretty close to that 2019 uh, employment levels in the restaurant okay. industry. We're at that like 90, 95 percent. So, you know, the industry was understaffed prior to the pandemic. They're still understaffed. Uh, and probably take, you know, more technology implica- uh, implementation over the next decade to kind of eventually get to that fully staffed. Do you like uh, them the best, Mike? Level. If you had to pick, if we uh, look at all of your research, you know, what's what's the stock that you're most excited about? Oh, wow. Um, you know, the, I cover a lot of them. So, uh, you know, in terms of performance-wise, Chipotle is really not going to cover off the ball. They have some risk because they're exposed to California, which, uh, you know, could raise quick service employee minimum wage to $22 uh, at the beginning of next year. Yeah, so that's kind of of a risk to that name. Uh, And they own their stores, so... The stock's um, come down from 1,800 to 1,373 over the last year, so... Yeah, it's it's been a pretty pretty good down move, but you know that's uh, probably as well run as any restaurant chain I cover. You know, McDonald's is another great name. Yep. You know, and they really nice. have the scale to to offer price points that yeah. their competitors just can't during a recession. And I will die on this hill. The best fries in the business, McDonald's. Mike Halen, senior restaurant analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence. If you want all that restaurant research, Bi Space Eats Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success.
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. All right, a recession is either here or it's coming, but I can tell you from decades of experience in the media business, advertisers don't like recessions. That's one of the things they pull back on first. And so we're seeing it across the board with these quarterly numbers coming in. Geetha Ranganathan, she's a U.S. media analyst, a senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, one of the best on the street. Uh, Mandeep Singh, a fairly decent tech analyst uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He covers meta and all those social media things. Geetha, let me start with you. Mickey Mouse is down 12% today. What did the company say on a conference call last night that spooked people so much? Oh, well, subscriber numbers were actually very, very good, but that's not enough these days, Paul. I mean, we were really looking at some really bad numbers on the profitability front. So parks came in much, much lighter than expected. And really, it's the DTC business, the direct-to-consumer business that I think is kind of really spooking investors because they already have... Uh, booked about $8 billion in losses at this segment, mm, and it's wow. just not going to get much better uh, up, up until at least maybe another one and a half years. So, um, you know, they, the main problem really is the guidance that they gave for a fiscal 2023. So uh, consensus was looking at about 20% operating income guidance for the entire company. They said high single digits. Uh, and so it's just basically weakness across the board, um, and investors kind of really looking at fiscal 2023 as an extremely or cost, weak year. Right? It's yeah. about cost. Like what, what, what's costing them so much? What are the blockbuster hits on Disney Plus that are so expensive to produce? It's, it's content, yes. Content is very, very expensive. It's sports rights. They pay about 9 to $10 billion in sports rights for ESPN. Uh, but, yes, it's, it's $32 billion that they're going to be spending in content costs, Um and, uh, you know, pro that that really kind of crimps uh, the bottom line. I mean, why do I need Disney Plus? Is it Mandalorian? Am I getting it for Encanto? You need it for, like what? You need it for the little one. For I, yeah, you know, I love it. And you have no choice. You have to get Disney Plus for the little one. Mandeep, all right, unlike Geith, who covers real companies, your companies, I mean, profits are, you know, maybe you got profits. Maybe you will have profits. Maybe there's a Dude, he a covers a company that just is firing 11,000 employees, and that's only 13% of the workforce. Exactly. So talk to us about Meta. I mean, the stock's up 7% on the news, but this is what happens when a traditional industrial company, they announce they're cutting their workforce and the stock goes up. Not a high-flying growth stock like Meta. What's going on with this company? Well, talking about making money, you know, Meta had 40% free cash flow margin before wow. They jumped into this metaverse, bet. okay, and they are bleeding, you know, over ten billion dollars a year on metaverse, and they're spending uh, approximately ten billion dollars on capex to build a metaverse stack. So, I think what really has concerned investors about Meta specifically is, look, uh, you know, there is competition from TikTok, but beyond that, you know, if you're spending hundred billion dollars in five years on this new thing, it has to have some commercial viability. And it's not proven right now. So that is, uh, you know, you could argue Roblox is the best bet when it comes to metaverse, but it's a $2 billion revenue run rate company with a very niche audience. And uh, yeah, But they're building the metaverse. So, they, and they're letting consumers build it, users build it for free, right? Whereas Zuckerberg is spending $10 billion a year to build it for us. 
Exactly, and, and they still don't have the same amount of content that Roblox has. So talking about content costs, as Gita was alluding to, in this case, he is trying to source more content on the metaverse, but clearly the engagement metrics aren't there and he keeps doubling down. So, you know, that is the reason why the stock fell off so much. The core business is still pretty good, although I would argue, you know, why can't they catch up to TikTok? At the end of the day, TikTok is using an AI-based feed. It has a lot of original content. So one, Meta needs to bring It only has original content. Yeah, and, and so right now what Meta is doing is they have pivoted to videos and reels, but it doesn't have the original creators creating that on Meta first. And that is what they need to do in terms of pulling those creators. Maybe there has to be a revenue sharing aspect to it like YouTube. Meta doesn't pay anything to its creators. So once you bake in the revenue sharing aspect, that will crimp the gross margins, mm. but they haven't announced that yet. By the way, Mandeep, so your universe, unlike Geetha's, is facing real challenges in terms of, well, just heads are rolling, basically, right? Fa Facebook and Twitter and um, you know Coinbase, everybody in, t in tech in Silicon Valley is getting fired. Is this the worst you know, pink slip party that we've seen since 2000? Well, so I, I think there was clearly a pull forward and based on what everyone has told us so far, they feel like they overhired. They thought revenue growth of 35, 40% will continue forever. And uh, look, has it happened before? Yes. In, in this case, I think there will be a correction. Some of these businesses, you know, that are based on user metrics and, uh, you know, AI driven, they're real businesses. It's not as if they're gonna disappear or right. somebody new will come on the block. It's just a matter of course correcting and revenue per employee was just going real down businesses. too much. Exactly. Real businesses, real businesses, I mean, hey, Geetha, you got about 30 seconds here. Where is a media vest investor to go to hide out here? Oh, tough question. You know, um, I, really, really, because um, the goalposts have kept shifting. Uh, you know, we, we are in for streaming pain with, with profit losses. We're in for a lot of linear TV pain. So, yeah, that, that I, I really don't know. There's really nowhere to hide. That's why I'm going to, I mean, that's why nobody picks up Geetha's phone when she calls to talk about stock ideas in the media space. Like, huh. I mean, I think you go to, like, I mean, I don't know, New York Times. I mean, go back to some of the sleeping newspaper names or some of the advertising. Or you industry. go to a different industry right now. Yeah, but yeah. if you're Geetha Ranganathan, you're a media analyst. You kind of got to stick with media. So, uh, Geetha, thanks back. so much. For, yeah, it'll come back. Geetha Ranganathan, she's a U.S. media analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence uh, based in Princeton, which I think might be the new headquarters of Bloomberg Intelligence, if I'm not, uh, if I'm not incorrect. Mandeep Singh, he's still here in New York at our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, trying to make sense of what's going on uh, with our good friends at Meta. Crypto, boy, it is ugly out there in the crypto space. Cryptocurrencies extended declines to the lowest level in two years as Binance is seen increasingly unlikely to follow through on its takeover of FTX.com. Let's just get a reset of what's going on in the crypto space. Let's do a little roundtable action if we will. Mike McGlone, he's a senior commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence um, Commodities, but he's been our kind of our Bitcoin and our crypto uh, kind of market specialist really over the last several years. And Shanali Basic, Wall Street reporter with Bloomberg News, joins us on, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Mike, you're down in Miami uh, at the Bloomberg Miami office, manning that office. I know a hurricane's coming your way. You guys getting safe down there? <laughs> hey, Paul. Well, right now it's just 
tropical storm rain. I hear it's mostly hitting the Bahamas. It might head north actually your way, and I'll be your way next week. So I'm bringing the storm with me. All right. Wait, it's going to hit Sam Bankman-Fried first then, right? Isn't he in the Bahamas? <laughs> But that, what's the key thing? It's true. It's Bahamas. It's kind of um, you know ironic, but that whole thing with him is such a shock. We you know the, the crypto space viewed him as basically the savior. It turns out he might have been just a fraud. Well, oh, I guess yeah, fraud I, that's is a strong word to use. But Let's, I mean, here's we got the you know the headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. The United States probes FTX empire over handling of client funds. And lending. Well, you would certainly hope so, <laughs> right? I mean, otherwise, what the heck are they doing? Let's get to Shanali, really. Give us, let's back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Tell us what happened over the last week. What uh, caused Sam Bankman-Fried to go from, like, the well-respected in Washington super billionaire that everybody wanted to get a meeting with and it was called the John Pierpont Morgan of crypto to a guy who might be investigated for the F word? A few things. I mean, that's not what he's being investigated for. So I do want to uh, make that very clear. That has not been determined yet, but the, or at all for that matter. But, you know, when you look at what happened here, Coindesk came out with the story really outlining the relationship between the FTT token issued by FTX and Alameda, which is another entity owned by, uh, largely by Sam Bankman-Fried. These are two different companies, and it drew some concerns about the intersectionality between the two companies and the balance sheets so of both FTX companies. So FTX is the exchange alameda is his vc company train firm tur turned out that alameda had a lot of his ftx token mm -hmm. and was you know doing a bunch of stuff with it in terms of how they were trading and uh, getting into different assets however what happened that really started to get a lot of attention here was that binance the ceo of binance on twitter started announcing that they would be selling their ftt tokens they had a lot of it and so saying half a billion dollars worth correct half a billion dollars worth and saying that they would be selling so many tokens would start to put pressure mm. on the price by other people selling on the back of Binance selling then yep. what had happened was you start to see uh, Sam Bankman-Fried really saying that there weren't clear liquidity issues in the company they were fine that's a different company right so yes. so CZ is like we're gonna dump this FTT token and that dropped 70% in yeah. value. So Almeida um, has a ton of what's now a worth less token, worth less than it was the week before. Then people think, okay, well, we are not sure about the connections between Almeida mm -hmm. and FTX other than the fact that Sam Bankman-Fried owns both. We're not even clear that that's why Binance was selling. But, but, mm -hmm. but it looks like people on the FTX platform were like, listen, we got to get our money off that platform. Yeah, right? so that's... That is when they finally announced a deal or a, tra a, a, a potential transaction. It was really just a letter of intent, a non-binding one for that matter. And the reason was to seal some of these liquidity issues that Matt was talking about. The problem now becomes, you know, 24 hours barely after that, we are now reporting, Coindesk has reported it as well. They, they refer to the news here that Binance is strongly leaning towards scrapping that proposed takeover. Right. Okay, so um, they're actually doing due diligence, unlike some other folks when they buy companies. Mike uh, McGlone here, what does this mean for the crypto space? You're used to traditional commodities, supply and demand, that kind of thing. How do you think this plays in the crypto space going forward? It stops. That's the key thing I learned in trading. This is a, a stop-hitting trigger for all cryptos. I mean, I don't see now Bitcoin... The next key support's not till about 12,000. Ethereum might hold 1,000, but this is a clear shocker. It means 
hit your cell stops, get out. I mean, just that juxtaposition of seeing Sam Bankman Freeman sitting on the stage with Bill Clinton and Tony Blair back at the Saw Conference I was so, at earlier in the year. It's just a shocker how that shifted. So the key thing I want to end is that, to me, this is potentially the contagion for all risk assets because Bitcoin has been one of the best leading indicators on the way up and clearly on the way down. And now we're seeing it. It was a trigger yesterday for people hitting stops in crude oil, and they're hitting stops in stocks now. So to me, this is part of that Ooh, great reversion point. of 2022 trickling. And what's the best indicator for it? That a good old Bitcoin. And check it out. You look at some of the stocks that are trading either in the U.S. or elsewhere. Coinbase was down 10% yesterday, another 9% today. And even though they said that they didn't have liquidity issues, I want to point out another firm that had not that much exposure to FTX itself, but it did have some exposure. Galaxy Digital. This is billionaire Mike Novogratz's company is down 20% today. It trades in Canada. It's trying to list in the United States. And so to the point that you can see contagion, you are seeing billionaires lose yep. a lot of money today. All right. You know, really interesting stuff. I'm, I'm glad we've allocated a lot of time during this show to crypto. We will continue to do it going forward. Mike McGlone, Senior Commodity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based down in Miami Beach, which is trying to make itself the crypto capital. We're going to check in with Mike going forward to see how that is going in Miami. Again, one of the hubs for all things crypto. And Chanelle Bassick, she covers Wall Street uh, and the reaction in financial markets to what is a meltdown in the crypto uh, space. Uh, hmm. So we will continue to follow up on this story. All right, so over in Egypt, Matt, they're having something, the United Nations is having something called COP27, where they're talking about climate change and what uh, governments need to do to arrest climate change. And it's a big deal. And Bloomberg's sending a lot of our smart people over to Egypt uh, to participate. Shaheen Sharmel Sheikh. Sharmel Sheikh. Which is like the, that's a diving capital of Egypt. Oh, and Shaheen Contractor, our ESG analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, she is a diver and she's going over, so hopefully she'll get to, to dive there. But Shaheen, you're going over to Egypt, COP27. Realistically, you're a Wall Street person. You look at ESG as an investment theme. What is Wall Street? What are the, does the ESG community really think may come from COP27 this year, COP26 last year, and presumably COP28 next year? Thanks, Paul. So I'll tell you what I'm most excited about, and at least what I'm looking forward to. So I think what happened with COP26 last year, and even this year, is that companies are setting these carbon goals at a pace we've never seen before. I've never seen it. So big, big carbon big, reduction goals. Yeah. Okay. And the question is, we have no idea what that actually transitions to what that actually means in practice if they so, execute exactly preparedness to meet goals what they're doing to meet these goals rather than just you know putting out numbers so i think what i would expect and i'd like to see is actual plans around preparedness and we are seeing that come to light so first today is finance day at cop so very okay. very realistic um the uk i think yesterday came out with this proposal to get every company to disclose on its transition plan. And there was a similar UN report today that sets out standards to judge companies. So I got most excited by that. I think and the reason you got to say is you got a master's in sustainability management at Columbia. <laughs> well, so she can help those companies actually do that, right? The key is here, we got to hold their feet to the fire. You can yeah. say we're going to be uh, you know, carbon neutral by 2050, which first of all, is like a hundred years from now. And yeah. second of all, 
is just mumbo jumbo if you don't have a real plan to actually achieve it. Exactly. And I think that's what we're going to hope to get out of it. I mean, to be fair, also, these carbon goals have been set very recently. So I, I think the transition plans and all that will come. But there's now this urgent need for it to be more realistic. Rather well, than the last ambition. COP, you know, in what was it in Glasgow, right? Glasgow. Yeah. The U.S. delegation went there and made a whole bunch of promises. Biden held a speech. And then on his way out, he was on the phone with Saudi Arabia saying, please pump more oil, right? I mean, so it's hard to buy um, all of these big promises. I'm sure that Sharm El Sheikh will be a nice place to go. And I'm sure they love rubbing elbows with each other, these, these big wigs. But are they actually going to do something about it as, you know, in many countries, it costs more to charge your car, mm-hmm. your electric car, than it does to fill up the gas tank? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, this year is a particularly challenging one, right? We have an energy crisis. We have all these things coming in. And you make a good point because China basically has sort of a very high sort of coal pipeline for its for its power generation, for its mining. So how is that going to be sort of realistic? How is that going to be fed in? All these are questions, I think, but on does everybody's Does China mind. participate in these uh, they things? do. They do send delegations. Every country sends delegations. I don't think their leader is going. Okay, so I don't know one that. of the challenges is we think about you know implementing these and, and really getting stuff done on the ground as opposed to these grand uh, pronouncements is who regulates this stuff? Who says whether my country, my company is actually meeting these goals? This The SEC doesn't look at this, for example, in the United States, does it? So... First, I think when these things happen at these conferences, a lot of it is self-regulated. Actually, all of it is self-regulated, which is a challenge. You have these UN agencies that basically regulate membership through these things. So that's one. I think there's a lot of just regulation also coming in from the authorities. Like the SEC has rules around fund disclosures, around emissions. Europe has a huge pipeline of regulations. So I think that's all to come. But... It may be a bit of a meandering on the way there. So last week, President Biden said we're going to be shutting down all the coal plants across America. Yeah, I mean, that's okay. a direct quote I have interesting. here. Do we still have coal plants? Uh, yeah. In yeah. response, okay. um, obviously, Joe Manchin wasn't pleased. He called those remarks offensive and disgusting. And he's from... West Virginia. Yes, of course. (laughs) But the point is, and I think the White House has kind of walked back those comments. It was maybe it was a gaffe by the president, which is not unusual. But um, don't we have to figure these things out internally before we can go and make credible promises uh, with other global leaders? I mean, especially as we see, you know, how much elections can change the makeup of the House. And maybe in two years, we'll have an election that changes the makeup of the uh, or or the um, uh, sort of the occupant of the White House, hmm. how helpful is it to, to make these these promises? Yeah, that's something that's interesting. I, I, I don't know. I think uh, a lot of this, a lot of what happens at these conferences is basically debating, basically raising issues on what their country needs, especially for the uh, emerging markets. I think a lot of what they are bringing to plate is basically uh, complaints that, you know, they need the funding for this transition. So I think a lot of it is also just voicing the concerns all right so for just esg in general if i'm a ceo i'll 
comply with ESG, whatever, if I'm incented to do so? Yes. If I'll get paid for it. Yes. Does that happen? Yes. So CEO, so executive compensation linked to ESG, that is something that's been growing tremendously, actually. So if we, we actually did this analysis on the Russell 1000, and we found that, you know, so CEOs payback, just they're linked to multiple things, right? Financial returns, yep. all that stuff. ESG is one of the factors that's being worked in. Okay. And we found that actually, I, I don't know the exact number, but I think it was 27% of the Russell 1000 have some kind of ESG linkages, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. Diversity and inclusion has seen this huge spike up, yep. which is the most notable out of all the linkages. Yeah, we saw that with uh, Goldman Sachs. They announced their partner class and it's uh, the most diverse in the, uh, their history and that's why there's and a the biggest large class a uh, biggest under big, the Solomon yeah, ring. big yeah. big big biggest class and in, in an effort to uh, improve the diversity of their partnership ranks so we'll see how that goes and we have lots of ESG data I would argue some of the best ESG data out on the street when you go to any company you're looking at on the Bloomberg terminal you hit FA for the financial analysis and that'll give you the income statement to balance sheet, all that good stuff but we also have a big tab of ESG data um, ranking all the companies, so it's good stuff there. Shaheen Contractor, she's an ESG research analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's about to hop on a jet tomorrow, head over to Egypt for COP27. That'll be good stuff here. We'll chat with you when you get back. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.